0: Welcome to Health Matters at Sargent College. The mission of Sargent College is to advance, preserve, disseminate, and apply knowledge in the health and rehabilitation sciences. BU's Sargent College strives to create an environment that fosters critical and innovative thinking to best serve the health needs of society. Each episode of Health Matters at Sargent College will include faculty, students, or alumni who will share their knowledge with you. I'm Karen Jacobs, the Associate Dean of Digital Learning and Innovation at Sargent College, and I'll be your moderator for each episode. On this episode of Health Matters at BU Sargent College, I'm delighted to have uh, a dear friend and colleague, Swati Karan, who is the Associate Dean of Research. also uh, the Yang Professor in Neurorehabilitation. She's the Director of the Aphasia Research Laboratory, and she is the Research Director of the Aphasia Aphasia Resource Center. Swathi, you have so many titles, um, and you are doing so much at Sargent College, and I'm delighted that you're the guest for this episode of Health Matters.
1: Happy to be here.
0: So, Let's start at the beginning. Um, tell us about your research interests, some of the work that you're doing at Sargent College, and how you are making a difference in the lives of so many people.
1: Okay, uh, that's a long story. <laughs> that's
0: okay, um, yeah, we have about 17 minutes.
1: Uh, great, so I'm gonna start with my interest in aphasia which is a communication problem that people have once they've had a brain injury it could be a stroke um, or a traumatic brain injury and sometimes even after somebody has um, a tumor and i got really interested in this when i was in high school actually growing up in india because i wanted to study how dreams happened in the brain and uh, and i and i kept reading about dreams and i realized that people actually think about what they're saying and and think about scenarios and the dreams and that led to language and then i got interested in language in the brain and then when i was applying to grad school in the us i found out that 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 studying a stroke um and looking at how people have trouble with language after a stroke was a perfect um dish for um understanding how the brain functions because you can because what happens in the stroke is it affects specific parts of the brain and you can see what that specific damage does to language processing. Um, So it seemed like a really great experiment to be doing to study the brain. So when I came to grad school at Northwestern, that was really the only thing on my mind um, was to try to conduct research in in the individual patients to understand how brain damage affected one person's language um, differently from another person. Um, and over the years, I, when I was in grad school, I realized that not only could you use stroke patients to understand how the brain processes language, you could actually help them um, recover those language skills if you, if you sort of use your knowledge of how the brain processes language, how it gets damaged. You could use that information back to understand how to treat them because you were getting at the, the underlying mechanism. So my dissertation, which was really a turning point for me, Um, in my career was to show that instead of teaching people who've had a stroke um, as if they were blank slates, like we teaching them language from scratch, uh, we actually, uh, you know, we're trying to fix a broken system more efficiently. And so my dissertation showed that you didn't have to teach people simple words or simple items um, when they had a stroke. You're actually better off and more efficient teaching people more complex or unfamiliar items because they were reconnecting what they knew about language um, before they had their strokes. So it was a more, so it was that you teach them more complex information and they would access or be able to produce the more simple pieces of information. So um, that was a big, uh, you know, there was, that created quite a splash at that point because people realized maybe there was a more efficient way to do rehabilitation. Um, and throughout my career after that as an assistant professor and as an associate professor, I really tried to channel that initial findings into different ways to show that there was indeed a more efficient way to do therapy. And when you did therapy to improve language, you should always be trying to see how much transfer you get, um, in uh, because you're trying to maximize the way the brain works. Um, And then for the last ten years, we've sort of we feel like we've come to a point where we, we understand more how therapy works and we started looking at how the brain actually responds to that therapy. And that's where a lot of our neuroplasticity work began was we started combining um, people who have had a stroke and received therapy with brain activation, uh, neuroimaging methods of fMRI and DTI and so forth. And so now we have a better understanding of how the brain's recovering in response to that treatment. Um, and then somewhere along the way, I, I started to realize that we were doing all this great work with therapy, uh, but it actually wasn't affecting the patients as much. Um, it was mostly research work that we were doing. Uh, but then we were lucky to get the opportunity to start um, Constant Therapy, which is a software platform that patients could access um, at home on a tablet. And that actually, again, changed um, the, the, you know, another inflection point for, for my research, because Uh, Now the therapy that we had developed in the lab was accessible to thousands and thousands of patients across the world. Um, And now, uh, especially in times like this, where people are asked to stay home um, and not go to the hospital or the clinic, um, it's been an even more important resource because patients can actually practice, continue to practice the therapy at home. So so that's been my research trajectory. Um, Fluffy, um for our listeners, I
0: think that they would love to hear more about constant therapy because you're right. This is such an... an such an important thing during this time when many people are distancing themselves and and are in their home environment. Can you give us a little bit more detail to
1: sort of paint a picture so people can understand what what constant therapy is? Right. So when we started constant therapy in 2012, it was um, essentially our goal was to take all the different types of therapy approaches we had developed in the lab, myself and, and other aphasia rehabilitation scientists, Um, So we wanted to take those therapies that people would typically, uh, you know, clinicians, therapists would provide one on one face to face using flashcards and objects. Um, We wanted to take that and completely digitize that so that people could sit on an iPad uh, and practice the same type of therapy exercise, but it would then collect data as they were moving their fingers or speaking. Um, and, and you know trying to read well, sentences or, or remember items and so forth. Um, so it was digitizing the therapy and at the same time collecting data as they were responding in this online format. Um, what we were able to uh, show um, uh, over a course of a couple of studies was that this was actually a very efficient way to deliver therapy because patients did not have to come into the clinic Um, they would practice, if you ask them to practice therapy at home, our first paper showed that patients practice an average of four hours a week, and some people practice um, up to 11 hours a week of therapy, which is not something you would ever get if you actually came into the clinic. So since then, um, as I mentioned, there are thousands, and I think the numbers right now is 50 or 70,000 patients who are who are practicing the therapy at home. Um, It's actually being used pretty widely across all English speaking countries in the world, including Australia, United States, and of course course, the United Kingdom and of course the United States. And um, it has become a way for clinicians to to provide systematic homework for patients. So when they're seeing the patients in the clinic, they work on certain things and then they prescribe this uh, software program as homework. Um, But it's also become the only therapy that patients who are sitting at home and who don't have access to a therapist um, can practice therapy uh, by themselves. So all they have to do is um, turn on the app on their iPads or phone or smartphones, um, and it remembers exactly where they're stopped from the previous session, and they continue their exercises. And the therapy exercises are essentially driven by, at this point, fairly sophisticated artificial intelligence AI uh, algorithms that remember exactly where the patient was, how well they're doing, and how to provide them the next most difficult task. Um, It records the data, the patients get feedback as they're doing the therapy, It tells them whether they got it right or wrong, and it gives them the next exercise. Um, And this software program records all that data. If they're working with a clinician, the clinician gets those reports um, if they're not working with a clinician, the patient can see their own progress on a daily basis, and then they get weekly summaries of their reports. Um, so it's really become, <clears throat> I would think for right now at least, uh, a really important alternative for people who, don't, who can't go to the clinic to get one-on-one therapy. Swati, the, the, <clears throat> thank
0: you so much. So if someone wants to learn more, um, do you have a website you can direct
1: them to? Yeah, they can go to the Learning Corp um, and or just Google Constant Therapy and it leads them to the website. That, thank you, thank you so much. And it's, it is a, a, such an
0: important tool right now because we wanna keep our therapies going. We wanna keep people active um, during this time period. So let's go back to, to your work. Um, You know, when you mentioned constant therapy um, that sort of take, took us on to another tangent. Um, You've got more work that's going on here. Tell us, tell us some more about what you're doing.
1: So um, at this point we, I think right now we have come um, to an interesting juncture um, where we have, we have a sense of what happens to the brain after a stroke and, and how language is impacted. Um, as I just mentioned, we have a pretty good idea how to fix or, or, or rehabilitate patients who've had a stroke. We've uh, not only developed the therapy, we've digitized it, we've collected tons of data on it. Um, and, and the third piece that I said, we have also started looking at how the brain responds to therapy and what makes uh, the brain reorganize itself um, as it responds to stimulation and therapy. So we've got, we seem to have the, the basic ingredients of what we think should get us really to the next step um, of, this, of this field of research. And that is, do we know exactly uh, what makes patients, some patients improve better or worse? And can we predict beforehand who's going to improve and who, who isn't going to improve as much? Um, and so this is where we are right now. We have a few uh, pilot grants Um, that allow us to collaborate with computer scientists, um, both at Boston University and we have another uh, fairly large NIH trial. And in all these cases, we're trying to um, develop computational computer simulations, artificial intelligence algorithms to help us take the data we have about behavior, about brain variables, and put them into these predictive models that tell us what are the most important features of the person's language or the person's brain, the, the stroke in the brain, um, and their family environment and so forth that's best going to predict whether that person is going to benefit from the therapy and their brain's going to reorganize you know, to the extent that they can return to work um, or uh, these factors are not as well situated or well, um, a line for that patient where we would expect to see limited recovery and we may have to come up with other treatment methods. It's a really exciting time because this is really what precision um, medicine is about, where you can take each individual patient and give them the best um, uh, therapy plan, knowing with some level of confidence that they're going to improve. I think what distinguishes this from all the work that we have done in the past is that in the past, it's been mostly trial and error. As every patient walks in, we try our best um, and we don't know until later whether it worked or not. Whereas here, we're using data um, that we've collected in the past to help understand it really well in a way that we can predict with some reasonable confidence that that person's actually going to benefit from the therapy. This is um, so exciting. Um, It's years
0: and years of work coming into a reality to help people. Um, You're doing um, some incredible work and you're also um, helping faculty at Sargent College um, with their research. So tell us um, some of your role as the Associate Dean of Research. Um, at Sargent College and and perhaps some of the initiatives you've been doing and and any insight that you have to, you know, the growth of research at Sargent College.
1: Absolutely. So I think um, all all the lessons I have learned as, uh, uh, you know, when I was a junior faculty um, and then now as a senior faculty are, are really things that we're trying to hand back to the faculty at Sargent College. So I've been involved in, in in three, I would say, major um, initiatives for the, the faculty. The first one has been to uh, really support the junior faculty in the college and get them ready um, to, to be very successful and tenure, get tenured. Um, and, and most of that has been one-on-one mentor, mentorship, but I think I can summarize that in, in the, at a high level such saying that, um, it's really been um, identifying funding opportunities um, and um, finding collaborators and and trying to align the expectations to succeed at research with the realities of of, um, obstacles that individual researchers face. But trying to set, having the goalpost in front of them, which is tenure, and then helping them get closer and closer to the goalpost is a big part of what I've been doing. Um, The second initiative has been to um, enhance uh, an already extremely successful research operation at Sargent. Uh, Our Sargent funding um, has been over $16 last year and probably going to increase even more. Um, And we are uh, at a point where faculty are very successful at at applying for and securing grants because of the nature of the work we do. But I've been... um, Part of my initiative is to get the faculty connected to each other to find greater opportunities for collaboration or, or, or a complementary expertise, or find faculty outside of the college in ways that um, we could enhance their own research productivity or come up with new ideas. So that's, a, uh, that's, a, that's an initiative that will see benefits in the long run. Right now, we're trying to connect people to each other by hosting workshops. And, and sometimes it's really just about understanding the nuts and bolts of how something works, like talking about clinical trials. Um, but sometimes it's much more broad as to trying to identify research collaborators who might be interested in pursuing Health as their research option. And then the third, um, the third big initiative is to enhance the research uh, productivity within the college. And the first thing we've done is to um, is to uh, restructure the grant funding, the internal grant funding, in ways to to incentivize each and every faculty and staff, you know, clinical faculty member at Sargent to secure money for their pilot work and, and eventually their professional development. Um, so in the past, that was sort of a limited approach where people who knew how to write these grants were securing grants and there were others who felt that it was too daunting a process. And now we're trying to make this a much more, um, a, you know, a open level playing field where everybody who had an idea that they wanted to try out, within uh, the confines of Sargent that either affected the teaching or research or clinical enterprise felt incentivized to apply for something um, that would give them a chance to test it out. So that's, that's, the, that's the short-term initiative, but the long-term initiative is to really increase the vibrancy of research at Sargent. Yes, and, and um, your leadership role has been so
0: important and you've really helped to um, educate and inspire uh, faculty. Uh, to, to be part of this. And I think it's really important to help Sargent reach its strategic um, goals. So Swathi, um, in the last couple of minutes of our podcast, is there anything you'd like to share
1: with our listeners? I think that Sargent, um, so Karen and you and I have been part of the, um, the development of the, the strategic plan for the college. You have been involved in many conversations. And I think that the time for a sergeant to go to, I mean, it's already a college that's doing really, really impactful work. Um, we're very productive researchers, extremely um, well-regarded clinicians. Um, so we're already doing well, but I think there's a point now where we can get to the next level um, and really show the world um, the kinds of leadership Um, that's being demonstrated at the college, for instance, online learning, which is something you've been doing for a while, will become mainstream now after after COVID. Um, M-Health, which is another thing that I just mentioned, a lot of faculty are involved in research at Sargent, including using smartphones to, you know, to get a test on people's um, mental health issues. These are going to probably be mainstream. Um, ideas in the next few years and we were there first and I think that um, it's a very exciting time uh, for Sargent because we could we we have the potential to become world leaders in many of the research and, and clinical research enterprise we have um, started to to work on for the last few years um, and I really hope that um, that that students former students alumni of the college realize the kind of groundbreaking work that has taken place and is still occurring and will continue to occur at Sargent, um, that's going to change healthcare in the next 10, 15 years. We're seeing an inflection point here. And, and I think we will be, um, we will be extremely happy and, and, uh, um, and gratified if we make the right decisions um, right now in the, to capitalize on the opportunities that are in front of us.
0: Absolutely. And so, you know, I see Sargent as a college being an agent of change to help change um, what we're doing in in preventive medicine and preventive uh, therapies in in the sciences. And um, thank you for your leadership and for being on Health Matters at BU Sargent College.
1: I'm very happy. Thanks friend.